in the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast, where we talk about the latest news and research from UC Santa Cruz. In this episode, we'll be talking about some super prestigious awards, a grant to support a prison abolition project, a TED Talk on body ideals, the very first arts convocation, and much more. I'm your co-host, Gwen Jordanet, and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News. I'm your other co-host, I'm Dan White. I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News. Yeah, and just a reminder that you can read more about these stories and find lots more at our website, news.ucsc.edu. All right, Dan, you ready to dive in on this rainy day? Yes, let's okay. go. Let's go, let's do it. Okay, so we have, we have uh, this is a little congratulations section. <laughs> We've had um, a number of high profile awards happen recently. So I just wanted to acknowledge a few of them and say, hey, congrats. The David and Lucille Packard Foundation awarded a Packard Fellowship for Science and Engineering to Roxanne Beltran, an alumna and assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. Packard Fellowships support young scientists and engineers who show exceptional promise and creativity. The Packard Fellowship gives Beltran $875,000 over the next five years to support her research. And this is so cool, Dan, what she does. Um, she uses migrating elephant seals as sort of like smart sensors for monitoring ocean ecosystems. Isn't that incredible? That is really unusual. What a cool idea. Um, by outfitting female elephant seals with this little array of like these sophisticated instruments, Beltran's research group will collect large scale, long-term three-dimensional data. I don't know what three-dimensional data is. Is that like a Rubik's cube? <laughs> <laughs> like a visualizing a rotating like anyway, <laughs> they'll get three-dimensional data on ocean health as the seals travel great distances across the North Pacific Ocean on their seven-month foraging migrations. All right, so that's congratulations number one. Another is Enrico Ramirez Ruiz, professor of astronomy and astrophysics, received the American Physical Society's 2021 Dwight Nicholson Medal for Outreach, which recognizes the humanitarian aspect of physics and physicists created through public lectures and public media, teaching, research, or science-related activities. Ramirez Ruiz was recognized for innovations in mentoring, such as the Lamont program, all of which have demonstrated how members of historically marginalized populations can thrive, lead, and advance scientific enterprise in astronomy and related fields. Dan, you've actually written about the Lamont program, haven't you? So, yes, it's a great success story. Lamont's an incredible program that attracts amazing young scientists, including some brilliant people who are really just needing the right opportunity. Mm -hmm. And when Enrico Ramirez Ruiz launched the Lamont Summer Research Program uh, on high-performing computing and astrophysics back in 2009, he's throwing out a really wide net hoping to lure the most talented community college students as well as current UC Santa Cruz uh, students and make them part of the astrophysics community. So yes, it's a really, really impressive program. Yeah, yeah, it really sounds like it. Um, so congratulations, Professor Ramirez Ruiz. Excellent. And Professor. one more, the University Library at UC Santa Cruz has accepted an invitation to join the Association of Research Libraries 
The ARL is a nonprofit membership organization of more than 120 libraries and archives at major public and private universities, federal government agencies, and large public institutions in the United States and Canada. It serves as a forum for the exchange of ideas and is a catalyst for collective action to create, share, and sustain global knowledge. So very good. Just yes. one more, well you know, one more rung up. And those are just a few of the awards and honors UC Santa Cruz and its faculty and students have won lately. All this recognition is just so great and so deserved. All right, so moving on, um, more good news, amazingly. The Andrew W. Mellon Foundation has awarded a nearly $2 million grant to support visualizing abolition, which is something really interesting and different, Dan. It's an art and prison abolition initiative led by UC Santa Cruz Feminist Studies Associate Professor Gina Dent and Rachel Nelson, Director of the Institute of the Arts and Sciences. I guess uh, it's the nation's most ambitious and sustained initiative like this. So that's really notable. The funding provides three years of support for the development of new work by artists, musicians, humanists, and other researchers. Programs will include public online and in-person events, art exhibitions, postdoctoral fellowships, a faculty working group, and curriculum development that reaches through prison walls. That is a really big boost for what sounds like a great project. <laughs> what exactly is Visualizing Abolition and what is it trying to do? Well, it's trying to examine the ways people see and understand issues of mass incarceration, detention, and policing in the United States and abroad, challenging the prevailing social, economic, and political worldviews that prisons promote. Den says there's a strong cultural attachment to prisons, despite data proving that they maintain inequities and don't even make people safe. Nelson says the goal here is to emphasize the roles art, music, and culture can play in a different mode of knowing, enabling us to move toward a more just future. The award funds a range of exhibitions and programming for the campus community, and they also have a partnership with the San Jose Museum of Art, the largest contemporary art museum in Silicon Valley, which will help expand the program's reach. Our chancellor, Cynthia Larive said visualizing abolition is poised to be one of the largest, most expansive public scholarship initiatives ever on art and prison abolition. And it's exciting to see it's all happening here. And I just really hope new ideas and findings emerge and take hold. Me too, it's an area that needs attention. And it feels you know, really timely to me, Gwen, because this very topic was the front and center of a really fascinating edition of the 2020 Martin Luther King convocation in downtown oh. Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. That's when there was the prison, ab prison abolitionist, Miriam Kaba was there mm -hmm. and she was urging activists to embrace the spirit of generosity and collective power and mutual aid. So it's not, when she talks about abolishing, you know, the uh, prison industrial complex, it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's changing the whole national conversation around what she calls racialized and gendered systems of violence organized through the prison uh, mm. industrial complex. And you know that was a really interesting button pushing speech. And it was really nuanced. And I think uh, it's, um, her ideas are worth checking out for anyone who's interested in finding out more about this topic. That's for sure. Yeah, 
Definitely. Well, it's um, it's all you know been really in the news lately. So uh, I think that a lot of ideas are coming out. Um, so we'll see. You know, I hope hope yeah. we can take some steps. All right. So moving on, uh, one of our professors did a TED talk on a topic, another topic that's very relevant right now. Different different topic, but another that's also relevant right now. And, and her talk's really getting a lot of traction. It's been viewed over a million times. So it's starting to hit those like viral <laughs> levels. Sure. Now. Um, professor and medical anthropologist Nancy Chen's talk is called The Inaccurate Link Between Body Ideals and Health. And she focuses first on how ideals related to weight and body shape have varied across cultures and time. But she notes Western societies have more recently popul popularized depictions of models with very thin body types. And these ideals have since spread to many places around the world. Dan, you and I, you know, we were young, we came of age in the 80s. And so we, we definitely know about this, thin yes, yes. was in. <laughs> um, but I, don't, I thought things were getting better, but it sounds as if the unrealistic body ideals have only spread. I think that that is true. And, um... It's just hard enough to sort of get by and um, you know support oneself and have a happy lifestyle without billboards and advertisements yeah. sort of and telling Instagram. you, yeah, <laughs> tell you how to look. And it's funny because people think of Instagram as a kind of a kinder, kinder, gentler form of social media, but you know there's a lot of content on there that really reinforces those body types. It's really yeah. actually. It's, it's upsetting. As someone who's gone through, you know, personally, I've had many shapes, Gwen. I've been fat. I've been oh, thin. Really? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was really uh, overweight, you know, so quote unquote overweight in the 90s. And the way people responded, you know, to me about that was it's kind of, I don't know, yeah. upsetting. So yeah. I can see it from all different angles. I, I can too. I've had um, yeah. similar experiences and, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen the damage Instagram has done in what was revealed through the, the Facebook whistleblower um, showing that um, it was very damaging to a lot of teens' uh, mental health. So, People yeah. Um, just human bodies are, you know, look like right. all shapes and sizes, you know? Yeah. So. So Chen says in her talk, weight stigma or fat phobia and bias are increasingly found not only in the global North, but also in the global South. At the same time, obesity rates have increased globally. Chen argues that public health campaigns intended to address health issues associated with obesity must be careful to avoid reinforcing weight stigmas. Otherwise they're likely to backfire. Oh yeah. Chen also discussed how the body diversity movement has been challenging harmful ideals and promoting representation for a wide variety of body shapes and features as part of social diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're in dire need of healthy bodies, societies, and environments, she said. We come in all shapes and features that are desirable and beautiful. By caring for healthy bodies, placing more value on internal vitality, we might be able to experience better health and collective well-being in this century. Well, and that's refreshing to hear, and obviously a lot of people agree. It sure is. Yeah. That's it for me. What's on your news radar, Dan? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had the real honor of attending virtually 
uh, an arts convocation uh, that served as a really wonderful reminder about the vitality and relevance and importance of the arts, why we need them, why they are important in our lives. It's an age old difficult question. You know, Gwen, when a college student turns to mom and dad and says, hey, I wanna paint, I wanna be a playwright, I wanna be a musician. And usually there's a lot of pushback. You know, what do you mean? How will you make money? <laughs> yeah, and sometimes we just need a reminder that the arts can really reach these truths and allow for forms of expression and honesty you can't find in any other discipline. So yeah. anyway, the, the first ever UCSC Arts Convocation took place earlier this month. And during that ceremony, the renowned conductor, Kent Nagano, by the way, a, a, a proud slug porter, class of 74, um, made an impassioned defense of the arts after receiving the first ever Distinguished Banana Slug Award, recognizing his outstanding career as a conductor, musician, and mentor. I should clarify, by the way, that I meant this was held uh, in October, actually, not, not November. Nagano, appearing on campus as the, at, at the very first of those convocations, um, an event, by the way, that was established by the wonderful new arts dean, Celine Pereña Shimizu, he described live music as a powerful force breaking down barriers and making our differences seem irrelevant. Quoting Les Miserables, author Victor Hugo, Nagano said that music expresses that which cannot be said and on which it is impossible to remain silent. Wow. Um, that's a pretty powerful argument in defense of the arts. Yes. So Dan, you raised a question that arts students face every year. Why are you studying this? What should those students tell their, their skeptical moms and dads? You know, there's a, that's a great question. There's a couple ways to answer it. And those, the, all the nuances were really addressed wonderfully at the convocation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Kent Nagano said, let me begin by asking a question, why do we need the arts? So that's part of it. Why is it important, mom and dad? Why do human beings need aesthetics? These questions may have been asked throughout the history of mankind and are the ones I was asked by many people, especially my parents, when I announced I wanted to study music at UCSC. You will confront this question again and again. Your answers will guide the pathways of your career. He went on to say, quoting Northrop Fry, uh, who once remarked that the natural sciences can help us explain the world that surrounds us, but the arts begin at the edge of the world we can imagine the one we construct in our minds, not the one we see around us. That's why the arts are so essential, especially now during a turning point for society in which arts are under constant threat. Their importance questioned, their importance to social development underestimated. Now, one thing I should add to the listening audience is, see, it worked out very well for Kent Nagano. You know, his yeah. parents were saying, what are you doing? And he's now this famous, wonderfully respected conductor who has won all kinds of awards. Now, um, Kent Nagano continued that that's this viewpoint, that rather pragmatic viewpoint reflected by many governments around the world, right? The whole idea of privileging the economic above the social experience. But here's the thing, which I wanna add is they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You could, you could have an artistic career and you can um, really reap the awards with that too. As I was talking about the fabulous new arts team, Celine Shimizu, she doubled down on the message of empowerment in the arts. And she says, there's no excellence without equity, no innovation without inclusion. No one should face obstacles to learning or impediments to their education, but there are also the nuts and bolts realities that she's addressed. I mean, Shimizu, for instance, she's got a far ranging vision plan that supports undergraduate and graduate student recruitment and retention and success 
while also bolstering these wonderful institutional partnerships with companies like Pixar, Amazon, Lionsgate, and Visual Communications Media. So that's something you, one could certainly tell one's mom and dad is, is look at these tremendous internships that UCSC can help you attain. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was such an inspiring uh, gathering. Totally. And like it. it was, it really gave me so much to think about. And I also want to talk about a group of five high profile UC Santa Cruz alumni who are using their talents to boost a philanthropic social justice initiative called Rise Together, a movement that harnesses the passions and talents of 17 leaders of color in the Santa Cruz County area. Now the Community Foundation Santa Cruz County, that's a really important nonprofit group, convened this group last year to support the vision and action needed to build a more just and equitable uh, county. Rise Together recently made $423,000 in grants to support work on racial equity initiatives in Santa Cruz County and is fundraising to support future grants. Wow, um, this is a long overdue initiative and it sounds like they're doing really impactful work. Could you talk about the, the need for this, about the urgency behind Rise Together? Oh, sure, it's a big deal, When I mean, Rise Together is filling a big gap. I interviewed several of the big five Santa Cruz activists who were involved in this, including Jacob Martinez, proud slug, founder of the Digital Nest. That's the uh, very influential technologically technological workforce development hub, providing youth in rural communities with valuable tech skills. He told me only 8% of philanthropy goes to organizations led by people of color. That's a huge, wow. only 8%, <laughs> uh, you know, 92% doesn't go there. Resources don't trickle down to programs led by people of color, he told me. Historically, in this county, philanthropic organizations have underinvested in communities of color. Look at Watsonville and at the Beach Flats community in Santa Cruz, they need a lot of support and their community programs are the most impacted by cost of living changes. But representation is only part of the problem. I think that a lot of small nonprofits might find the whole grant application process off-putting or maybe even intimidating too. That's really true. Sad but true, Gwen. I mean, I would say, you know, good point. Those two things kind of go together mm -hmm. because that creates its own barrier when you've got this whole bureaucracy yeah. I mean, I know that I would be very intimidated doing grant writing, totally. but Rise Together sort of flipped the script in terms of philanthropy and how that works. I interviewed Ruby Vasquez, another proud slug, Merrill, class of 87. Um, and she's an educator in the Paro Valley Unified School District, traditional dance instructor for the Mexican uh, folkloric group Estrellas de Esperanza for Children and Youth, uh, and assistant director for Esperanza del Valle a dance company for adults, busy person. Anyway, she got a grant to help bring an esteemed traditional dance instructor from the Costa Chica uh, region of Oaxaca, Mexico to work with her student folk dance group in Watsonville. Now, instead of having this sort of soulless, intimidating meeting with grant writers or never meeting them at all, right? The Rise Together group, what they do is they make presentations to each other about the funding that they need for their various projects. So they're all kind of vested in this, right? Um, then the group made collective decisions about each proposal. So the whole thing was really personal, really local, super intimate. It's all about making philanthropy more on the ground, impactful at the local level and equitable. And it sounds like they're doing such a, a, 
a, a fine job. Now, I'm gonna to pivot to the scientific realm for a moment, Gwen. Um, now we all hear about the ticking biological clock. People use that, it's almost like a cliche. I had no idea there really is in some sense an actual biological clock that you can kind of see under certain circumstances. I thought it was just a concept. Turns out a team of UCSC scientists has figured out how to assemble a biological clock in a test tube to see how that works. <laughs> really? Okay, Dan, I'm just full of questions. What would a biological clock even look like in a test tube? Oh, yeah. Like, are there like little gears? Yeah, yeah, click TikTok. <laughs> how, um, how would you study such a thing? And what do you what do you mean by calling it a clock in the first place? Yeah, and if it, something is wrong, do you take it to like the jewelry store? And have <laughs> yeah. Super good questions, Gwen, you know, because it is weird. It's almost like a, a reality that's based on a metaphor. In this context, we're talking about biological clocks. We're talking about this really, it's the, just that's sort of a, a code term for the cyclical actions of proteins that keep our biological rhythms of life in sync, all lined up and coordinating with a daily cycle of night and day. Circadian rhythms, in other words. And this is true not just for us humans, but other complicated life forms and also really simple ones, even single-celled organisms, including cyanobacteria. If I'm not mistaken, I believe that's the same thing, Gwen, as blue-green algae. Oh, blue-green algae. So let me guess, algae is somehow involved in this test tube? Oh my gosh, you're one step ahead of me, Gwen. Correct, <laughs> correct. Team of scientists, how do you know that? Has I don't know. Has recreated, brought to life, the circadian clock of cyanobacteria in a test tube, enabling them to study rhythmic interactions of these proteins in real time and understand how the rhythms of that clock influence the expression of genes. So these researchers, researchers in three labs at UC Santa Cruz, UC Merced, and UC San Diego collaborated on the study. It's funny, blue-green blue algae, I usually think of as those door-to-door -door salesmen selling pro, like those supplements. Like, it's, remember it was like Carol <laughs> in the 90s? Like, eat your blue-green algae. Now, recon, <laughs> reconstituting a complicated biological process like a circadian clock from the ground up, it's really helped scientists learn how these so-called clock proteins work together and will enable a much deeper understanding of circadian rhythms. According to Carrie Parch, a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at UC Santa Cruz and a corresponding author of the study. Okay, um, this is all very interesting. And, you know, I have read a little bit how people have like different circadian rhythms and their night owls and their like morning larks and all this. But how, where does blue-green algae come into this? Like, how does it provide any insights on human biological clocks? Yeah, aside from like ingesting a lot of it for like quite <laughs> as a know? supplement. Yeah. Well, good. It resets your circadian clock. No, the way it is is there. There are parallels because, as Park noted, the molecular details of circadian clocks, weirdly enough, they're remarkably similar molecular details in the circadian clocks of human beings and cyanobacteria. So having, a, I don't know why that is, but for some reason, those rhythms are, are kind of the same. So having a functioning clock that can be studied in the test tube or in vitro instead of in living cells, that provides a powerful platform for just exploring how the clock's mechanisms work and how that responds to changes. So Gwen, I'm just guessing they could, you know, draw broader conclusions far away from the realm of the blue-green algae, 
Yeah. Wow, the realm of the blue green algae. It sounds like um, the next sci-fi sci book. Yeah. <laughs> but um, wow, okay, um, this is you know once again above over my head. But um, yeah, I mean, it all sounds like fascinating, and uh, you know, I hope we get some incredible you know findings from this. And of course, all the stuff, I mean, there's heaps of stuff in, in most of the stories we talk about, there's heaps of stuff about online. So if people are interested, yeah. they can just jump on to our site. You know, exactly. News.ucse.edu and find, find more out more that's uh, more detail than Dan and I have the ability to, <laughs> to relate. Who knows? You could maybe assemble a brand new circadian clock for, I don't know, like a newt or I don't know, whatever creature you, you want to do. Well, all right. Well, I think that's it for us today. Um, I think our circadian clock has just about run out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's midnight on yeah. the circadian clock. All yeah, right. Blue-green algae are, are deriving all kinds of conclusions from, from this. They are. They Maybe are. they're studying us in another realm, when Oh, yeah. We're, we're a test tube for them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that is it that for this note. time. Yeah. Uh, good as always to have you with us. Stay safe, slugs, and we will catch you up with all the latest news next time. See you all later, everybody. Hey. Bye.